Let us pray. Now, Father, we come to that point of your service when the service when your word is proclaimed is heralded. Oh, God, let it not be the words of a man, but the words from a man given by God, your word. You must be at work by your spirit if the word is to have any meaning at all. Paul at that river proclaimed the word of God and God opened the heart of one Lydia. May there be Lydias in this place this morning, not because of the man who speaks, but because of the one of whom he speaks. Open the eyes of our understanding to receive wonderful things from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Will you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the text that was read as we come to look at this third in the series of exposure, our encounter that exposes. Uh, for those who are visiting with us, we're looking, we're studying the life of Christ, but we're seeing the life of Christ through his encounter or through the woman at the well's encounter with him. And this is the third of these messages, and... Um, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 26 where the, the encounter is getting more personal, more deeper, and I trust that it is the same thing that is happening to you and to me as we study. I know that I have been affected by this text while studying it. My own heart has been stirred and continue to be as I learn more about Christ and about myself in from the Word of God. And so we come this morning to ask ourselves the question and to answer it. What happens not only when we encounter Christ or when Christ encounters us, but what happens when we are engaged with Christ, when we are, when we are engaged with Him? It is one thing to meet someone for a brief moment. And you might be able to say, I met this one. A few weeks ago, Christopher and I were in Seattle. And I went there to hear of someone that I know about and have been listening to for a while, Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi graduated, may I say I graduated from the same um, undergraduate school he graduated from. He graduated in 72, and um, I started when he graduated. So I went to meet Ravi, and I said to him, uh, you know, you and I did undergraduate studies at the same place. And um, I had a brief moment with Ravi. In, in fact, I am surprised that I haven't had more people saying to me, I saw you with Ravi. Because you see, there, there's... There's such a thing as Facebook. I don't have a Facebook. So you can draw your own conclusions. But I, I can't say that I was engaged with Ravi. I can say I had an encounter, a brief encounter with him. Many people have a brief encounter 
with Christ, but they have never engaged themselves with Christ. They have never gone beyond the pleasantries. Good morning. How are you this morning? What is your day like? What do you plan to do today? What challenges are you meeting? See, you're engaging, you're getting to know something. And this woman started with Jesus at the well. You remember what she said? How is it that you, a Jew, will ask me who is a woman, as a Samaritan woman, for a drink? The Jews have nothing to do with the Samaritans. So everything that she's dealing with at the beginning of her encounter is exterior, is outside of herself. And Jesus began to break down her resistance by saying certain things. And the climax came when Jesus said to her, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. And what, what affected this woman was the fact that she had never met Jesus before. Jesus had never met her before, but Jesus was able to say how many husbands she's had. Please remember that Jesus did not have some information given to her, to him, about her before the encounter. Meeting at the well was a divine arrangement by God. And that Jesus should be able to tell her what her past life was like was something that she could not deal with. The barriers were being broken down. And the more she was encountering Jesus, the more she was being exposed to who Jesus was and to what her own needs were, who she was. So this is what's happening in verse 19 of our text. Verse 19, she begins by saying, I perceive, sir, I perceive. When we engage with Christ, the first thing that happens to us, he begins to disturb our spirits. He begins to get inside of us. This woman had lived her life in seclusion, not only because of her gender, but because of her way of life. She went to the well at the time when she wouldn't have to meet others who were living a life different than hers. And now she comes to the place where someone she had never met before knows about her. And he was getting under her skin. Sir, I perceive, I I, where I live, where no one has ever been before, you are getting to me. You are beginning to disturb me. This, what else does this man know about me? He knows that I had five husbands. In fact, he knows that the one that I'm living with now is not my husband. What else does this man know about me? You see... Jesus is the one, my friends, who unveils to us our own spiritual bankruptcy, our own spiritual needs, our own spiritual hurts. He knows. He knows the disappointments of our lives. Sir, 
I perceive. The word perceive means I am getting the feeling inside of me. I'm beginning to see something of myself as you speak to me. There's a big word. A very big word in theology. is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscience. Omniscience. Omniscient means to know everything about anything that is to be known. That's Jesus. He's omniscient. He knows, says Psalm 139, he knows when we're up, when we're down. He knows our thoughts are far off. Let me tell you, I have had thoughts that I don't love. And if Jesus knows what I am thinking, that's scary. When, when, when I was, when I was a, a little boy, I, I borrowed my, father's, my, my grandfather's pocket knife. And of all the times my grandfather needed his pocket knife was the time I borrowed it. And I wanted to show off my friends at school that I had, I used to call him a penknife. And when I got home, my mother said, where is it? <laughs> she didn't even ask me if I took it. She knew that I was the one who did it. That's scary. My friends, there's someone who knows more than what we do. Jesus knows who we are. Not only what we do. Jesus knows the, the, the inner me. The part of me that I don't like. The part of me that I don't want anyone else to know. He knows it. Sir, I perceive he begins to disturb her spirit. She was content to go to the well every day as long as no one bothers her. She was content to go to the well as long as no one confronts her. But here she is now in front of one who is penetrating her inner self. And the id, the ego, is beginning to be disturbed She's beginning to be moved inside. I perceive that you're a prophet. See, this Samaritan woman knew something about her Bible. Her Bible consisted, as we shall find in a moment, only of five books of the Bible. We call them the Pentateuch. She, she, she believed nothing beyond those five books. And in that book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, chapter 15... The promise was made to Moses that a prophet, the prophet, would come. And what this woman was beginning to come to the conclusion, if this man knows me, listen to what she says in verse 25, 26. I know that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And she is beginning to hear all things. She said, you must be the prophet. So all of a sudden, if you are the prophet, what, what, what is my response? I, I love it. Look at what happens in verse 20. 
She said, in verse 19, Woman, Jesus said, uh, the woman said, I perceive you're a prophet. She perceived that Jesus was a prophet, so she, she decided to become religious. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, oh, hear the disdain of that. You people, you are wrong in your perception of life, but we have it because we have five books of the Bible. You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where you worship, that we ought to worship. And, and I, I love this because if the one thing that worship should not do, the worship should not make enemies of people. But she's worshiping God in Mount Zerubim. She's They're worshiping God in Jerusalem and they hate each other. See, worship, my friends, unites. It doesn't divide. We shall see in a minute. So, Jesus not only disturbs her spirit, now Jesus is going to destroy her security. Because for her, worshiping in that mountain was the, if, if I am able to worship in that mountain, I've got it. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem to worship. My Samaritans worship in this mountain. This is the place we worship. You see, she was saying that worship takes place in a place. That worship takes place because in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, God had told them to, to, to get a place where I will meet with you. And, and, and these two people, the Samaritans and the, the Jews, one chose Jerusalem because, you see, the Jews chose Jerusalem because they believed in more than the five books of the Bible. And in the rest of the book, God had promised David that David would be the one who would be the means by which God will bring the message to the rest of the world, to the Jews and to the rest of the world. The Samaritan thought that Mount Gerizim is the place where God meets with people because they concluded that this was where Abraham made his first sacrifice after he went into the promised land. And so they started to worship the place. They started to worship the location. And the location divided them. <laughs> you know, I've met people like that. When I became a Christian... I remember people sneered at me. The, the, the name Thurton was well known in the place where I lived, not, not for anything bad or for anything good. It was just well known. And I had some relatives who belonged to another denomination because I became a Christian one morning in a Baptist church. And they sneeringly said to me, I was born a, and I will die a. Have you heard that? I was born a Methodist, and I'm going to die a Methodist. I was born an evangelical, and I'm going to die an evangelical. This is what this woman was saying. This is where we worship. You people say that, and the people there say that of you, and you say that of them, and none of them is worshiping. None of them. 
Jesus is going to destroy this security of a location. But my friends, I want to suggest to you today, imagine my latest Christianity Today, that's a magazine I get that tells of religious news. The the, the latest craze in church worship is whether we should dim the lights when we worship. I mean, can you imagine? What will that do? You see, if we, or, if you please, earlier it was, should we use the piano and not the organ? Get rid of the organ, keep the piano. Well, should we get rid of the piano and use just the guitar? Or we sh- should we use hymns or just chorus? See, we, we are all looking for our own security. There are some people who come to church, my friends, and if you sing hymns, they don't sing it. If you sing chorus, they don't sing it because I can't worship unless I'm singing a hymn. Or I can't worship unless I'm singing a chorus or a praise song. You see, we're looking at things to make us worship. And Jesus destroys that. Like the woman, so many see worship as an event centered in what we do, where we are. Jesus is going to destroy that. You know, as I continued to study this text, I wrestled in my own mind because I thought, I'm not going to finish this tomorrow. You'll see why in a minute. Because the engagement with Jesus is going to not only destroy, he's going to build. Jesus not only remove wrong thoughts about himself from our minds, He replaces them so that we think correctly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5, St. Paul said, We destroy everything that raises itself against the knowledge of God. And if, if, if I think that what I do is going to make God more knowledgeable, my friends, we worship what we have created. Jesus is going to destroy all that. Sometimes it is painful. Because when we are secure in what we have always done, when we're secure in the way we have always done it, let me suggest that when Jesus is going to correct it, sometimes it will be painful. And I'm not talking about adjusting things. I'm talking about why we worship. So let's look then at verses 21 to 26. When we engage with Jesus, the first thing he does is that he censure our worship. You know, we, we, we in this day in which we live, we don't want to tell anybody that they're wrong. We want everybody to feel that everything is okay. So we never say, no, you are wrong. Because we don't want to look like we are proud. I want to tell you, when Jesus has broken down your security, there is nothing to be proud about. Because grace doesn't make us proud. It makes us realize how bankrupt we are without that grace. How, how does he censure this? Neither, or neither, whichever one you want, nor. Jesus said, woman, 
And that is not a, a disdainful thought. It is the res- it's a respectful, a respective, respectable expression. Woman, the time has come. Everything that the Pentateuch, those five books you spoke about, were looking forward to a time when all that would be centered from a place to a person. And if you want to hold on to worship taking place in a place, you're going to lose what was intended. Neither here nor there. All the time she was talking about worship, please notice there was no object. She said, you people say we should worship here, or you people say, we should, uh, your people say you should worship there. But worship. She's talking about an event. She's talking about an activity. If I do this, I will feel that I worship. The activity and the place were her chief concern. So Jesus bypassed both of them the concept of location being the best place to worship, they worship in a vacuum when you worship a place or an event. You don't reach God. That's why worship can become boring. That's why we have to try to change things all the time. Because the more we change, then the more we feel that, well, well perhaps this is going to help me to get. I read some time ago, 85% of the people who go to a church service never worship. 85%. Because we have all kinds of wrong concept as to what it is, and Jesus has to get rid of that. Tradition is good, but it is dangerous when its purpose is missed. The Pharisees kept their tradition, and Jesus said, your tradition is actually supplanting the very word of God. What you do or what you don't do is becoming more important. And Jesus is going to say to us and to me, to you, if we are going to come to the place of true worship, he's saying to us, don't look out. Don't look back. Don't look inward. Look up. That's what he's going to say. You are wrong if you are worshiping a place. You know, my friends, may I say to you, and I want to be careful because you know that I do not speak politics. But a religion that kills to survive is not a religion I want to be a part of. That's why I could, I could, I could never go to some of the Eastern religions that are coming. Because everything is me. And if you don't do that way, I kill you for it. <laughs> Peter tried that, you know. When Jesus was being arrested, Peter said, Oh, no, you're not going to get to my sense of worship. I'm going to kill you. And he took his sword and he chipped off the ear of the, 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 the soldier that came to arrest Jesus. See, he was going to protect Jesus. Friends, Christianity does not look for protection. Christianity looks for a proclamation, not protection. God doesn't need you or me to protect him. So, Jesus is going to destroy this woman's sense of worship. Is it worship you want to talk about? Let me tell you what worship is. Jesus said, neither here nor there, 
Because salvation, salvation comes to us by way of the Jews. Jesus is saying that before anyone can worship, he must be saved. Before anyone can worship, they must be born again. Uh, again, that's why I don't see how I can, can have a, a worship service for non-Christians. That doesn't make sense. If Jesus says only believers can worship, and I say no, I think that non-believers can, that doesn't mean that non-believers couldn't come to a service. None at all. 1 Corinthians 14 says they can. But when they come and they see how believers worship, you know what they end up saying? Surely God is in this place. They discover something. And as long as we keep to the place. You know, when I was in Scotland, Lois and I were in Scotland. We went to an evening service in downtown Glasgow, Scotland. Many of my friends in Toronto came from that church, and so they said, Winston, when you get to Scotland, you want to go to the Tron to worship. So we did. And there are two things I remember about the Tron. Right beside it was a pizza hut. See, at that time, all our son ate was pizza. And I didn't know where we were going to find food for him and right outside the church was a pizza hut. That took care of that. The second thing I remember, that each row in the church had little closets, if you please, sections. And each of those sections belonged to a family. And woe to anyone who sits in one of those family seats. You see, we can own. We can own the house of the Lord. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But we say, no, it's my house. This is my seat. This is my. And we go on and on and on. My. And Jesus is saying to us, when you are saved you begin to realize that nothing is yours. Everything you have has been given to you. The church is not the establishment of a few people who have a general idea of what it is for people to come together. The church is the called out ones from the world that God saves and then cause them to realize who God is and they begin to worship God, as we shall see in a minute, in the way that God designs. So he censured. And my friends, it, it, it might be. We were talking about this Wednesday night at our, at our meeting. I mentioned about someone asked me about if I would serve communion in a certain way. And I said, no. Because the concept I have of God is not that way. A.W. Tozer puts it in another way. If we think wrong thoughts about God that is not true of God... We are guilty of idolatry in the highest sense. If we think thoughts of God that are unworthy of God, we're guilty of idolatry in the highest sense. See, I can think this is the way I worship God. 
And nowhere in the Bible a man or a woman worshipped God the way they think. This is what this woman was doing. Jesus is going to get to her. So now, in verses 23 to 26, he corrects, he corrects her concept of worship. This is where I am saying, I don't know if I'm going to finish this morning. If you were living at the time of Shakespeare or some of the other early writers, their contemporaries, you would not say you were going to worship God. You would say you are going to worthship God. Worth. Because worship is acknowledging the worth of God. See, Jesus is going to say to her five things that must be present if worship takes place. The word worship comes from a Greek word, proskuneo, and it means to kneel or to prostrate oneself. Not a song, not an instrument. It has nothing to do with anything external. You see the worth of that person. Where I was born, a certain denomination was very prominent, and whenever people would pass the church, if, if, if it was a man, I've seen them a hundred times doing it as a young child, when they pass the building, they take their hats off. If it was a woman, when she passed the church, she made the sign of the cross. And then if they met the bishop, they would kneel and kiss his ring. They were saying, I value you. I value it. And Jesus is going to... See, you notice again, please remember this. Nowhere does the woman say who she's worshipped. She's just telling where she worships. Keep that in mind, because Jesus is going to get to that. So the first thing Jesus does, he distinguishes between true and false worship. It is possible to be sincere in our worship, but to be sincerely wrong. That's not my idea. That's what Jesus is saying. The woman was saying all the time, our forefathers, she took her worship way back to the tradition of her fathers. By the way, they both took it to, to Abraham, whether Jews or, uh, Jews or the Samaritans, but they all stayed on the horizontal level. And as long as your worship is on the horizontal level, that is as high as you will ever go. That's as high as I will ever go. So Jesus distinguishes. Listen to what he says. Verse 23, the, the time has come now, the hour has come, that neither there or here you worship in ignorance because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is now, the period, the age has come that those who worship God, and, and he didn't use the word God, he, he, he used the word Father, that when the true worshipers worship the Father, 
See, Jesus now puts an object on the verb. Worship is a verb, and it has an object. That those who worship the Father, they must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He distinguishes between true and false worship. Oh man, I tell you, I'm, I'm struggling right now because I'm thinking, should I say this or should I not say this? Um, I, I, don't, I don't want to appear, my friends, that we're running down any religion. But a religion, no matter how big it is, that focuses upon some human being, and there are some of the biggest religions in the world, focuses upon people who were born in sin. And Jesus is going to correct that. We worship God the Father. We don't simply worship. We don't go through a routine, something we do. We get up, we sit down. We sing, we give. And that's it. In Toronto, I had a, a gentleman who, who thought he was paying me the greatest compliment because he said, after 11.45, when I come to church, no one can say anything to me. And he's sitting down there. That's it. Nobody can say anything to me. But I have listened to you until 12 o'clock. <laughs> he wasn't doing me a favor, friends. He was grinding away at my heart. You know why? Because if he has been sitting there, and he has been in that church for years before I came, and all he could do was to sit and look at the time he wasn't worshiping. He wasn't worshiping. He wasn't doing God a favor. Jesus said, there is a true and a false worship. And the true worshiper has certain things that are true, and the false worshiper has certain things that's true about him or her or them. So what is the first Thing that Jesus said worship must have. Worship must have an object. Look at it. All through this text, Jesus said, we worship the Father. The true worship, worshiper worships somebody. There is somebody they acknowledge to be greater, bigger, wiser, more powerful than they are. I sat for hours, literally hours. Why did Jesus not say that the true worshiper who worships God? Why did he say the Father? I'm looking at the time. If I start this, you will stone me. Because you're going to say, you went too long. 
And I really, I don't want to rush this, friends. This is so vital to us. I knew it was going to happen. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to close the service now. And we're going to get to this next Sunday because I want to give the whole service to this. When Jesus said, when Jesus said that the true worshiper worships the Father, he's saying something about worship that is absent when we think only of a place or a person. He's bringing us face to face with the purpose for which we were created. As we shall see, the true worshiper, the true worshiper begins with the acknowledging of a person, not the one who is worshiping, but the one who is worshiping, who's being worshiped. Because it is possible, Jesus is going to teach us. It is possible to be present in a church service and not be worshiping. It becomes a boring experience. You can think of a hundred different places you would prefer to be than there. But Jesus says when you encounter who you worship, you will be able to sing as we were singing this morning. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Let us pray. Oh God, I have labored this morning and I trust not in vain. These first part of the message from this text were, Lord, words that sound almost arrogant. God forbid that they should be so. The authority comes from the scriptures, comes from the Holy Spirit, not from the man. So I pray that whatever was heard this morning, that the voice of the Holy Spirit was heard and not simply the voice of a man. And Father, as we think in terms of what will happen, how do we worship God? I pray that we will will return in this place to hear again what God says about worshiping Him. Until then, help us to begin the road back to what true worship is, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.